Hey, everybody. It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, a Democrat and a Republican walk into a bar, or actually lots of bars, and a strip joint, and the Presidential Library, and the Grand Ole Opry, and the Capitol Building in Washington, D.C., and a lot of other places scattered across the USA, trying to find common ground to get beyond red and blue to, I guess, something a little more purple. The liberal in this story is the comedian and actor Michael Ian Black, and the conservative is Megan McCain, the daughter of John McCain and now a political commentator on MSNBC. The two do not see eye-to-eye on a lot of things, ideologically speaking, but they do agree that American politics has gotten way too nasty and too polarized in recent years. So they decided to do a little experiment in bipartisan hand-holding in the form of a road trip. They piled into an RV and spent a month traversing the country west to east. They started with a visit to Megan's family in her home state of Arizona, and they ended at Michael's domicile in suburban Connecticut. Along the way, they visited a lot of quintessentially American places and talked to a lot of their fellow citizens, including Mormons in Salt Lake City, strippers in Vegas, community activists and musicians in New Orleans, and politicians in the nation's capital. And they report their adventures in a new book, which is coming out this week. It is called America, You Sexy Bitch. And it's not just about the country as seen through liberal and conservative eyes, but about the attempt to see things through each other's eyes, which is more unusual these days. I talked to Megan McCain and Michael Ian Black about what they saw. You, you just sort of made this plan without really thinking it through? There was very little thought involved, yes. Yeah, it was pretty <laughs> impulsive. And potentially <laughs> a recipe for disaster, yeah? Yeah, but I think that's why at least it appealed to me. You know, I mean, it was so ridiculous and risky and kind of crazy, and I didn't really have time to explain it to anyone. Our agents, who are basically how we met, were very confused. They're like, we just introduced you guys. Now you're writing a book and going on the road? Okay. <laughs> and, and you didn't really know each other at all? No. No, not at all. Um, Megan, were you aware of Michael's comedy? Had you, had you seen his work? Yeah, I used to watch I Love the 80s in college, and um, it was like a big thing in college when we used to watch it, and I remember him from that. And um, before we met, before when I met, I was a guest on his show on a pilot he was taping, I did a little YouTubing, and I saw some of his sketches with Stella. So you knew he was kind of crazy then? Yeah, no, I knew he was like, <laughs> and had a, I knew he had a cult following. I have a, an, I have a few other friends that are comedians that um, just think he's, you know, like a legend. So they told me to have some respect, which I didn't when we first met. <laughs> you were very respectful, I thought. <laughs> Seriously? I hope I, I hope I was respectful to you as well. I just remember us making fun of each other when we first met, but it was fun. So um, what stereotypes did you have of each other? Um, I thought that Michael, um, I thought he had to at least be somewhat open-minded to even want to go on a road trip. And we had had a discussion about just the budget, like it was going to be very cheap and obviously it was in an RV. So I thought he had to be pretty cool if that's, you know, because some people are divas, you never know. Um, and I just assumed he was, uh, you know, extremely liberal Obama supporter who uh, was open-minded to my opinions. So it, that's what I thought. I thought it was going to be fine. 
You did write of him, though. Uh, yes, Michael is an East Coast liberal, pacifist, socialist, elitist, snob comedian who has never shot a gun, <laughs> wants to give away health care, open up the borders, and loves Obama. Yep. That's what I thought. But I thought he was a funny liberal. I was very funny. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think there are more liberal comedians than, uh, than there are conservative ones? Um, I find people generally in the entertainment industry, and Michael, you know, back me up on this, I just find generally in the entertainment industry people are liberal, and if they are conservative, then they'll hide it, and they, won't, they don't want to talk about it. So. But the biggest names in entertainment are conservative. Uh, Alex Trebek, for example. <laughs> <laughs> Wilford Brimley, I mean. Sure, Wilford Brimley. you got, you got your uh, Stephen Baldwin's. Not, is, that, is that the right Baldwin? One of the Baldwins. Yes, that's the right Baldwin. Clint Howard, Ron Howard's little brother. Clint Howard, perfect example. The people who run the town <laughs> are very conservative. Uh, Kelsey Grammer. Yes. Uh, Kelsey sure. Grammer. Gary uh, Denise. Gary, Gary Bruckheimer, that's a big one. Uh, Robert Duvall, really one of the greatest actors of his generation. Yes, Gary Bruckheimer, he is one of the finest actors. <laughs> <laughs> Robert Duvall. The one that surprised me the most was Dennis Hopper. Dennis well, Hopper. I'd take that with a big grain of salt if I were you. And every and country singers, you know, the entire country music industry for the most part. Yeah, but is. that can't be defined as entertainment. That is entertainment. <laughs> that is America. I do want you guys to have an argument, uh, just like the ones you had on the RV as you traveled across America. Well, probably everybody wants that, and they will undoubtedly get it as we spend more than thirty minutes together. Good. Well, what was the bitterest argument you had? Healthcare. Healthcare. Do you think it was that, or do you think it was Iraq? I think it healthcare was Iraq. Healthcare and Iraq. Both. I mean, uh, we had two really big fights, like big ones, and one of them was about healthcare, and one of them was about Iraq. Okay, so I'm going to guess, uh, Megan, that you don't like the Healthcare Reform Act. No. Otherwise dismissed as Obamacare. And you're cool with it, Michael? Uh, I am more or less cool with it, yes. Somebody's got a car outside their window. Not I'm me. currently outside in the wilds of Connecticut in my conservative uh, suburban <laughs> existence waiting for my public school bus to come and drop off my daughter from her publicly. Oh, so we're going to get to hear background okay, noise. Cool. You I... probably will, but there's nothing I can do about it. All right, unless all right. You, unless you just want me to abandon her. No, no. And no. I had respect for this radio interview, and I'm in my quiet apartment. So. See, well, right there, you've got an edge over Michael. <laughs> uh, and the other issue you say is, is Iraq. Uh mm-hmm. And, and your position, Megan? I was against pulling out. Um, I continue to support the war in Afghanistan, and I think pulling out is extremely dangerous. And I think the catalyst for the big fight, when Michael and I were originally discussing it, I said, we can fight them over there, we can fight them here. And I live in New York City, 20 blocks away from Ground Zero. And I, both my brothers served. One of my brothers is currently deployed right now. My little brother served in Iraq. It, hit very, it obviously hits very close to home, and... Uh, Michael thinks the opposite, but I yes, always I think we should that... fight them here. <laughs> <laughs> but I always preface this you that you perfectly do... <laughs> crystallized my position, Megan. <laughs> no, <laughs> well, we disagree <laughs> on foreign policy and um, anything foreign policy related. Um, I wouldn't say anything foreign policy related. I'm probably fairly conservative when it comes to Israel. Okay, that's true, except for Israel, and I'm extremely conservative when it comes to Israel. But um, I just, it was, a, it was just a big fight we had, and it's documented well in the book. But um, I will say that my goal is very respectful to the men and women in uniform, very respectful to my family. And uh, we met some soldiers 
on our trip, and we got to tour um, Fort Campbell, and, you know, we had an amazing time. I think I can speak for you, Michael. We had an amazing time hanging out with them and hearing their stories. So um, I always like to preface that. There's this, you know, sort of Chris Hayes stigma out there right now that liberals don't like soldiers and they aren't heroes, and I feel the need to speak for my friends on this issue. I mean, you come from a a strong military family going back generations. I mean, you guys even have destroyers named after you. Um, yeah, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but does that mean that you support every decision to go to war, or do you look at them on a case by case basis? Um, I would say a case by case basis, but I'm for fighting terrorism and fighting anything that is going to in any way impede on my freedom and what it means to be an American. And I mean, people automatically go to where obviously a warmonger. And I always say no one understand. I understand the sacrifice on a very deep level. And I write, I don't want to give too much away in the book, but I write, there's a part in the chapter where I talk about what it was like just literally that day watching my brother deploy, like, sure, I was never going to see him again and that he was going to die and that it wasn't fair. So I feel like on some level I can talk about it, but obviously I would take everything by a case-by-case basis. I'm not, like, for war. I don't think anyone is pro-war, but I thought that we had a mission in Iraq and we continue to have a mission in Afghanistan, and it's a very important one. Um, We asked uh, Megan about her image of you, Michael, uh, which in some ways you you sort of confirm, partly in jest, but you, you write about yourself you go to a fancy restaurant and you say it's the kind of, quote, elitist restaurant me and other jerk-off liberals like to congratulate themselves for visiting. Yeah. Uh, and, quote, <laughs> and, quote, liberals love nothing more than to feel intellectually superior. It's what we do best. Of course. We, we sit around and say pretentious things while listening to pretentious bands like Radiohead and feeling <laughs> smug about everything. Yeah. Well, look, when NPR calls, they're like, oh, you get to do an interview with NPR. I mean, my little my little liberal heart goes pitter patter. I, I I get thrilled. I love it. <laughs> but the Radiohead thing—that's really more about you than anybody else, isn't it? Well, Radiohead's <laughs> just a good stand-in for all the annoying alternative music that people like me listen to. That has you know that has no melody, has no beat, has uh, well has a lot of beats, has too many beats maybe. <laughs> has lyrics you can't understand and don't even need to. So, so you really believe that stereotype? Uh, no. I think part of, part of what was fun about the book was and is that Megan and I are really playing with stereotype and really sort of holding yeah. our own stereotypes up to the mirror and saying, yeah, you know what, some of this is true and, and a lot of it is just patentedly false. You know, I think one of the stereotypes that Megan just talked about was the stereotype of liberals uh, being anti-military, and it's just not true. I mean, it's just not true at all. I mean, I, I, I think um, people of my political persuasion care very deeply about the military, and, and particularly some of them of, do. Some of them I, I think do. A lo- I think more of them do than don't. I, I think I think I think we're very sensitive to Michael. The I love you. I love you. But you, I know you extremely well. Obviously, he's like I call him my liberal brother from another mother. You would never go on television and say that a fallen hero. You were uncomfortable calling him a hero. You would never do that. No, I, I wouldn't. But, 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 but I think there's a deeper meaning to what he was saying. I think he, I think he expressed it incredibly inartfully. But I, and but he I has think since that, apologized. I just think that's a stereotype that you don't adhere to, but some people do. No, of course not. But I think... I think uh, yeah, See, we're fighting yeah. for you. <laughs> we're, get, we're, we're getting close to it. Can I, can I ask you guys to clarify what, what you're talking about there? 
That was the Chris Hayes thing on MSNBC where he said, what, what was the quote, Megan? He was uncomfortable calling uh, fallen soldiers heroes. He said something, I, I, don't want to, I don't know the direct quote, but something, it was a scandal over Memorial Day weekend that he said, I feel uncomfortable with the term heroes for soldiers that have died because right. it's sort of validating war. And obviously, I mean, I am Facebook friends with, I mean, I, hundreds of people in the military and wives, girlfriends of mine whose husbands are literally over in Afghanistan right now, and I just... It blew up all over Facebook. It blew up all over Twitter. He has since apologized, and I will give him that he seems to sincerely regret the way it was phrased. Right. But it's, you know, something that exacerbates, again, stereotypes about of liberal course. media. That, that, that's what's so bad about it, that, that it exacerbates this, this stereotype in that, well, I'm not going to say it was politicized. It was a political statement. But I think what he was saying, and, and I'm not going to put words in his mouth, but, the, but, but, but a sentiment that I share with him, I think he shares, is that when you refer to somebody as a hero, in a sense what you're doing is romanticizing that sacrifice. And I think he's uncomfortable with romanticizing it because what it does is it elevates war to an aspiration. Uh, a hero can become a martyr very easily, and I think he's uncomfortable liberally applying that term, liberally not in the political sense, because it, it, in, a, in a way it validates um, that sacrifice sometimes when it's not necessarily uh, uh, valid. Uh, I, I just expressed it as inartfully as he did. <laughs> and I'm like anybody that joins the military and is going and fighting for my freedom and doing all the bullshit that they have to put up with in order for hero. me to write books with comedians like Michael is a hero, period. Now, Megan, you talk about yourself as uh, loving God, guns, yep. country, and there's a tone in your writing about yourself that says, and I ain't going to apologize to anybody. No, I moved to New York City when I was 18, and um, obviously everyone knows I'm from Arizona. Right? And sometimes when I'm out socially, especially in New York or L.A., there's this, this sort of attitude that, you know, this looking down on Republicans, and especially Republican culture. And I love God, even though I talk about in the book that I have a complicated relationship with God and the church I grew up going to. Um, I love I love America all day every day. I get drunk and talk about how much I love America. My <laughs> friends always joke that I get drunk and I want to toast to America. Michael can validate this. Yeah, I literally I'm that. like, here's to this country, this great, amazing country. I was when we were doing an interview with Inside Edition like two days ago. The space shuttle was on the, a barge going over to the Intrepid because it's going to be displayed on the Intrepid. And I was like, God, I love this country. I love this country. I love that there's a space shuttle on a barge. Going to the Intrepid outside my window. doesn't happen anywhere else. You're not going to get this in France, you know? So, yeah, I literally love America. So does Michael, though. He's just not as loud about it. Um, but I was interested in the, the no apology um, tone. And, and I had a, a theory, which I think maybe you're, you're starting to confirm, which is that you have felt a little bit attacked. And, and there's this feeling of maybe being on the defensive when you describe your positions. Maybe because you went to, to New York to go to Columbia University when you were 18 and entered, uh, you know, enemy territory? Um, I, don't, I mean, Michael, do you have a take on this? I mean... Uh, I think that's true. I think, I think you do feel defensive. I mean, my sense is that you feel defensive. My sense is that I you're... I feel defensive towards people that don't understand. Yeah, and again, I don't like... My sense is that your hackles get raised uh, when, when your culture is called into question, as anybody's would. Yeah, and I do come from, like, again, Michael has spent tons of time around my family and my friends, and I just come from this place where we're, like, we're loud and we're proud, and, like, I wear American flag T-shirts with, like, the American flag in a heart, and, like, I love USA, and when 
we kill Osama bin Laden. I'm one of the people out there, like, cheering and screaming and celebrating this country. And I don't think there's anything wrong with being loud and proud of, of your patriotism. And for some reason, I have found, and again, I don't like stereotypes, and this book really is about coming together and sort of crashing stereotypes and putting them at rest. So I don't want to make this seem like this book is super polarized, because I think Michael and I pride ourselves on the fact that this book is really positive and about coming together and celebrating the things we have in common versus different. This isn't like a crossfire type book. I don't want anyone to think that. But no. I am much louder and, I guess, maybe flamboyant about <laughs> my patriotism than Michael is. Well, yeah, he doesn't you are it. star-spangled. That is what <laughs> you are. You are just, I love America, man. I really you do. Are, you are star-bedazzled. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have, like, I have a framed American flag, like, you know, that... Hung in my living room in LA. There's no room for it in New York, and I have American flag stuff everywhere. And I don't know. I just I don't know. Is there is there anything wrong with loving this country and being proud about it? I mean, come on. Those those are those hackles being raised. Nobody <laughs> said there was anything wrong. Megan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we that, love you. That, that's right. And so I'm just thinking it's because you have spent a chunk of your life in a generally liberal city that maybe you have had to like stick up for your views a lot. Is that is that right? Oh yeah, I mean, I have. I mean, I feel like I have to stick up for who I am all the time, everywhere. I mean, not just you know, not just in New York City, but just you know, when I go to home to Arizona, I'm considered liberal by a lot of people I grew up with because I'm for gay marriage, and I work for MSNBC now, which is like selling your soul to the devil for some people that I know. And then when I'm in New York City, you know, I am a Republican, and there are a lot of things that are conservative about me, and I have. You know, I'm a proud NRA member, and then I get those things called into question. So, yeah, I do feel like I've spent a lot of time defending my views. But I think it's great. It makes you stronger, and it really makes you figure out what you believe. I I had the sense that um, you two are in really different positions in this book. I mean, Michael, you're an actor and comedian, and no one's really going to go after you in any serious way for, for voicing your opinions. Whereas Megan, on the other hand, not only... You know, has she offended everybody in one way or another? I mean, the the right wing has gone after her for a position on gay marriage and her criticisms of the Republican Party. Uh, she's still conservative in many ways, so she gets a lot of criticism from the left. And she's the daughter of a senator. And you guys bring this up in the book. Um, there's a passage, I think you write, Michael, that something you call the office, which is Senator John McCain's senatorial office, right? Yep. kind of has its eye on Megan, um, you know, I mean, she's part of a famous political family, so what she says reflects on him, whether she wants it to or not. Megan, that sounds like that sounds like a tough life. It's, I mean, it's only tough in the sense that I don't I don't want to embarrass my father, and I don't want to embarrass his staff because they do feel sort of like extended family to me. But I also want to have a voice and a life, and it's it's a hard thing. I I struggle with trying to reconcile both worlds and being true to myself but respectful of my father and obviously his, his job and his legacy at the same time. Um, but the people that I have met in my life that are the most miserable and unhappy and just living lives that I would never want are the people that aren't true to themselves and aren't who they believe. And I think a lot of things in my life would be really easy if I just never said anything controversial on TV and just, you know, stood still and looked pretty and that's it. But who wants to live like that? But it's a struggle. <laughs> I saw you on uh, Real Time with Bill Maher. I think it was in 2009. Oh, that was like three and a half years ago. It was hands down, hands down, the worst 
my worst experience on television ever. Horrible. And it wasn't because of Bill Maher. I actually liked Bill Maher. It was because of Paul Begala, a little worm. Well, I mean, uh, what happened was he had said something. Let's we talk about this, really. Oh, okay, I, I won't uh, belabor it, but I did want to ask you one thing. When I saw that, when I watched that, I saw you look really uncomfortable. And I thought, why do you want to be in this political fray when you have a lot of other choices? I know. And do you know what is so hilarious is a lot of people are like, you know what? You just come from this family. You can just sit around and party all the time. Like, why don't you just be Paris Hilton? And again, who wants to live like that? But more importantly, when I was on the campaign, when I spent two years on the campaign, I saw anything and everything, and I really had my eyes opened to the things that I felt were really right in the, in the Republican Party and the things that I thought we were doing wrong. And I felt like, I mean, things sort of snowballed and, and blew up uh, when I started working at the Daily Beast, and I didn't expect things to happen so quickly or get so much publicity so quickly. But I think it's just because I was saying something different, and I continue to say something different. And I am, Michael can tell you, I'm exactly the same person in private that I am on television. Anything I'll tell you behind closed doors, I will say on television because I have backbone. And I like fighting for what I believe in and trying to change the world. And I know that I am the daughter of a senator. My mom has a lot of money and that I can just sit on my butt all day doing nothing. But once again, I want to try and change things and make the world a better place for Michael's children. Michael, so, so would you agree that this book was riskier for Megan in some ways than it was for you? Oh, no doubt. No, there's no risk for me. One, yeah. because nobody cares what I have to say. <laughs> and two, yes, because do. anything I say, people are going to be like, oh, he's just a comedian. Uh, exactly. You know, no, it, can, it can all be for him. It's risky for you in the sense that I think when we first announced that we were working together, um, some of his fans were really, I mean, he has like crazy fans, like extremely loyal cult following, and they do not like me. I mean, I get nasty tweets about it all the time that I'm going to, like, infect him. <laughs> so it's risky for you, too. Well, but, I mean, I have to say, if, if, if that's true, and I, I suspect it probably is to a certain extent, you know, I don't care if I lose those people, you know? I, I, I'm, I'm much more interested in doing things that are challenging to me um, and that are maybe unexpected than I am in, you know, keeping... The, the sort of cultish fan base that I have. Well, these fans you're talking about, what would they consider infection? I mean, I think that the biggest danger that I read about in the book is that you would persuade him to like strip clubs, hard drinking, <laughs> and uh, firing ranges. You know what I mean? I mean, you're going to corrupt him in a direction that most people wouldn't consider being very conservative in most cases. Um, I just think his, <laughs> his fans that I've encountered... Um, you know, it's a, it's a hipster, again, not to stereotype, I'm sure you have conservative fans, but for the most part, very liberal hipster niche that is extremely strong and extremely loyal to him. And, um, you know, this, the, I had no idea what beehive I was kicking by, you know, collaborating with Michael in the sense that I had no idea that Stella and the state had this such intense following and that literally almost every day since, we announced this book when we were on the road and until now. I would get a tweet from some person in Brooklyn that is like, how dare Michael work with you? Why would he ever work with you? You're a Republican and you're John McCain's daughter and blah, blah, blah. And I don't know. It just it like cracks me up that they're so angry. You do, decided to work with me. Do you, do you think they know, Michael, that as, as Megan points out in the book and is really clear, you're actually, you know, in your lifestyle, you're a lot more conservative than she is. I mean, you're a family man. Mm -hmm. You're a bit of a, 
I think, kind of a, a private retiring kind of guy. You didn't drink for the longest time in your life. Um, no, I know that I'm, from your memoir. I'm basically Ward Cleaver. <laughs> <laughs> whereas, whereas Megan, you know, is a two-fisted drinker, hard-partying hellraiser. Uh, and she... I, she I'm likes, not quite that bad. Well, you, you liked getting lap dances in Vegas much more than Michael did. Yes, she did enjoy it far more than I did. <laughs> oh, Lord. Have mercy. Everybody's got to read it. I, did, Megan, I, did, I wasn't it. uncomfortable in the same way he was, but I'm a woman, and you know I have my own set of boobs, so it's not quite as exciting <laughs> for me. Um, <laughs> and one of the ways you did, though, uh, you know, try to corrupt him is you put a gun in his hands. Um, I did. And this was I when... Put, well, my brother put many in his hands. So this was in... Uh, you started this journey on your home turf in uh, Prescott, Arizona, where your your family has a vacation home. Uh, we, it was actually... We went to um, our place... My family has a place in Sedona. Well, Cottonwood, which is it's like 10 miles away from Sedona, but I always say Sedona because people can, can identify that more. But Prescott, we have a really good family friend... We went to, she has a ranch in Prescott, um, and we met her on the 4th of July, and that's where he shot guns. And uh, though he didn't really have the right attire, like he had linen pants and Crocs, you say he did pretty good. He did. I was so surprised, and everyone was surprised. He wasn't, some people, I've, I've shot with people before that haven't, haven't ever shot a gun before, and a lot of times, you know, it's still a weapon, and it's obviously dangerous, and obviously can kill someone, and... You have to be extremely safe, and I'm all for gun safety and people understanding what they're doing before they do it. And he had a safety course before we before we shot guns, but he took to it like a duck to water. He had a good time. He just shot one after another, and, and he seemed to have a great time with, with everyone. And did you, you enjoy it, Michael? It. Yeah, I loved it. I've since purchased several handguns, and I just leave them scattered around the house. <laughs> <laughs> to be comfortable around firearms, so I just leave guns out now. <laughs> oh, Lord. And, and yet, Megan, uh, you sort of allow is how you don't really see, uh, you don't say it this way, you're not quite this harsh, but that Michael's really not a manly man. You have to understand the level of testosterone I'm normally surrounded by, just between my brothers and my father and my cousins and all my ex-boyfriends. and like, most of the men in my life are just alpha to the point where we could take it down a level and it'd be fine. Like, somebody always ends up, you know, wrestling and fighting and there's guns and beer. And again, we love America and we got to talk about how much we love America. And, you know, Michael's just a little different. But I love him just the same. It doesn't adhere my sentiments <laughs> towards Michael. Have you ever seen uh, the fight scene between him and Michael Showalter and Michael and Michael have issues? <laughs> I have, actually. Somebody tweeted it to me a while ago. It's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I could kick both your asses. You <laughs> oh, and I. <laughs> I think it was the best fight scene I've ever seen. Anyway, well, yeah. it's, it's a fight scene in which no contact is ever made. <laughs> I know. You're like dancing around a grassy knoll. <laughs> <laughs> um, throughout this book, uh, I was waiting for that moment, and I thought it would come earlier when, you know, Michael, who's taking you out, you're. You're 27, right, Megan? Yeah, I was 26 on the trip. I'm 26. Well, so he's taken out this 26-year-old for a month in an RV, right? And you know, I couldn't wait to get to that moment where he meets the dad, and <laughs> and it doesn't happen to, until the end of the book. But it turns out it is kind of like Ben Stiller and Meet the Parents, isn't it, Michael? Oh, totally. Like that. That's a great way to describe it. Yeah. John- <laughs> 
You're meeting John McCain I'm for the first time. I'm <laughs> watching <laughs> But this is after the trip is over, so uh, or, or almost it's, over. It's, it's, it's at the tail end of the trip. Yeah, we finally get to the senatorial uh, offices, and that's not that's not where you want to meet the senator on his home <laughs> turf. You know, surrounded by <laughs> security details and staff, and you know, there, it was the, it was in the middle of the uh, the the the, the, the budget, debt ceiling the, crisis. Yeah, the debt crisis, and he was all on edge, and he could. I mean, he just did not give a rat's ass about me one way or the other. I mean, other than he, other than he made it clear he disapproved. He made that clear in in body language. Yeah, <laughs> he made it. What'd you say, Megan? You know, I my father is. Ex- is extremely protective of me even now, even after all the things be. I've said and done. And um, he still doesn't understand, like, why I did this or for what reason. And Michael is, you know, a man I was on the road with who wasn't my boyfriend. And, you know, he's, I mean, you think you had it bad? Like, I feel bad for any man I bring home that I actually am dating or, you know, engaged to or whatever. I mean, the kind of, like, hell <laughs> Whomever that is going to have to be put through. I think he was just, um, he's very stressed out because of the debt ceiling crisis, and I would have preferred Michael to meet my father at home, but it just didn't work out with scheduling. He was working all summer. And, um, I mean, it wasn't the most, I mean, it was a little awkward. Leave <laughs> it at that. I think Meet the Fockers is a great, a great, <laughs> great comparison. It was really awkward. D- did you call him, sir? I Michael? did. Yes, he did. Sir and Senator. <laughs> Uh, there was, I mean, I couldn't. There was not even the level of informality where it could have been Mr. McCain. Not a chance. No, really. Oh no, no. It was Senator or Sir. So, so Megan, your dad has scared off numerous suitors, hasn't he? Um, I haven't. I, I had a boyfriend that, um, like, I met. It was my brother's friend, so he had met him. But I don't introduce my dad to boyfriends because, again, they just have a hard enough time dating as it is with like men knowing who my father is and like you know he was tortured and. He ran for president. He's so scary, and men are really intimidated by my father. So I'm not going to put any guy through that unless it's like for real. You mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. You say though you you do favor uh, alpha males. Uh, in fact, I think you say uh, <laughs> that you would never even consider a vegetarian. Uh, vegan. You, I said vegan. Ve- <laughs> <laughs> uh, that uh, you definitely would prefer a guy who drives a Ford truck to a BMW. And yeah. uh, we should note that Michael drives a BMW, so that was kind of mean. <laughs> it was a dig. There's no question it was a dig, yes. <laughs> um, and by the way, for the record, like, it goes both ways. Michael likes East Coast hipster chicks. I mean, he has a lovely wife, but I, I don't know if we could, like, be more different. Mm-hmm. And, and, you, and you're different ages, too. And, I mean, part of the, the book is a contrast of, like, you know, social categories, uh, liberal versus conservative, Westerner versus Easterner and all that. But part of it is a contrast between a 26-year-old and an almost 40-year-old yeah. uh, family man. And uh, it is a, it's a strong contrast. I mean, Megan, uh, you, you know, one of the most interesting um, episodes in the entire book, and I'd like you to tell me about it, was when you guys went to Branson, Missouri, um, <laughs> you know, the entertainment capital of Missouri, uh, <laughs> uh, and you went to the club, I guess it's a you know, club or a, you know, a, a theater owned by and perpetually you know, filled by Yakov Smirnov, uh, the yes. Russian uh, comedian who was famous in the 80s and is not so famous now, and who continues to basically do the same shtick he did back then. Uh, and you guys saw him perform, and afterwards you had a pretty visceral reaction. I did, and 
I'd just like to say, we, Michael and I had gotten in a fight in New Orleans beforehand, and then um, I was, we saw Yakov Smirnov perform, and I didn't know who he was, and then he didn't meet us. We had requested to meet with him to talk to him because he is a Russian immigrant, and we thought, you know, obviously any stories about living the American dream we both want to hear about and making it big. And I just had a very, I was going through like a weird point in my life anyway before we went on the road trip, just a professional experience that ended up being a failure, a huge failure. I was going through a very bad breakup, and I had literally the first like existential life crisis, what am I doing with my life crisis, a little bit of a like, I wouldn't say mental breakdown because it wasn't like that, but it was just like I freaked out and had a panic attack watching Yakov Smirnoff perform in Branson, Missouri, and then Michael had to handle it. I was like, what am I doing with my life, Michael? <laughs> answer these questions for me. You know, you were, you were still sorting out what you're going to do with your life. You are in your 20s at a point when you probably shouldn't know yet what you're going to do with your life. And uh, thinking that you might become Yakov Smirnoff at some point in your life was filled you with dread, yeah? I just feel bad. I mean, I feel bad because when I write him a letter in the book, an open letter saying my reaction was much more a reflection on me than you. And it was just that I, I didn't love his act. Um, again, maybe I'm in the wrong age range, but Michael, did you love his act? Oh, it was horrible. We didn't love his act, basically. <laughs> and it was just this feeling of we were watching a lot of clips of him. And, you know, I think anybody in, in any kind of industry where you're a writer or you're an artist or a commentator or anything, you know, there could very well be an expiration point. And, again, I had had a particularly difficult um, spring, last spring, and I was just, I think I was in denial and decided to go on the road instead of dealing with it. And then we went to see Yakov Smirnoff perform, and then I freaked out and freaked out at Michael. But, but it was a good freak out. I mean, it made me make a lot of decisions that led me to where I'm at now, which is a great place. So not that I have it all figured out, because I don't. What place are you in now? I'm just really happy working at MSNBC, and obviously this book was just, I had to really, you know, that's one of the things we talked about when I had a little freak out was, you know, how amazing this book is and how much we both were committed to, you know, its message. And I don't know, I just feel like I'm in a really good good place in my life at the moment. I'm going to be mean, okay? I'm not going to apologize like Megan did to, to Yakov Smirnoff. Okay. Um, Michael, does seeing a, a comedian who's kind of run his course, you know, but is still getting, you know, up on stage every day and doing the same thing. Does that depress you as a comedian? Yeah, he was depressing, but it, but it, it's not so much because he's run his course for me. It's because he's been doing the same. It's because he hasn't grown with the times. Yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. It, 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 it's much more to do with that than, than him in particular. I mean, uh, it's depressing to go into a theater that probably seats 1,500 people and have there be, you know, 80 people there and have him, like, giving you a hard sell about his other show and his gift shop and everything else. It just felt a little desperate and sad. Right, right. I, I feel bad. I mean, I write an open letter to him, basically apologizing to him, because he still is. He seems, I mean, that's still a good gig. I mean, he has a great job in this recession. He has a fan base. There were people in the audience that were laughing and did enjoy his show. And, you know, I, I feel, t- I don't like trashing Yakov Smirnoff everywhere, but, again, it by weird reaction, we couldn't not put it in the book. And it was one of the things Michael and I had a discussion about because, for me, it's very vulnerable to talk about, you know, being scared of the future and being scared of a woman, you know, you know, aging in the industry and am I going to evolve and all the questions I think anybody has 
as they get older. Um, you know, it's still a scary thing to write and open up yourself to be vulnerable about, but uh, ultimately Michael and I kept everything in the book and didn't take any of it out, even though maybe maybe we should have. I got the sense that you, you did that. And um, by the way, we should explain for listeners that the book is um, really sort of an alternating series of what seem like almost diary entries, you know, at various stages of this trip. So we'll hear from Michael, and then we'll hear from you, and then back and forth, both reflecting on the same events and, uh, you know, offering observations of each other in various circumstances. How did you guys do that? At times it seems as though you must have shared the writing with each other, so you're reacting not only to the events but also to each other's writing as you go along. We were writing separately and trading chapters. Um, Megan had an advantage because I was a little bit ahead of her in the writing, mm-hmm. so she generally got to see my writing before I got to see her, so sometimes her writing reflected uh, seeing mine first. And then sometimes, you know, later in the process, I would go back and respond to some things that she said. But, but yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty much the way it works. Just, we just had a great editor. Back and forth. You know, we did. We had, we had, fairness we had great to people helping us. De Capo. We had a lot of help um, helping organizing it and uh, keeping the good parts of each chapter and, and helping organize it. But you were reading um, each other's writings at some point, right, um, yes. at various stages, and then seeing how the other experienced the situation that you'd been in and, and seeing how the other had observed you, right? Right, So, yeah. So what things that the other person said about you surprised you or maybe even maybe even opened your eyes to something about yourselves that you weren't 100% aware of? She said I wasn't chivalrous. <laughs> <laughs> You're not. <laughs> You're not a great male escort at all times. I thought I was. I thought You're I was. Not. I thought I was being great. I thought I, I, was, I was opening doors. I, was, I thought I was being considered, but I was not, apparently. I was not nearly enough. And so... <laughs> He would wander uh, off and leave me in stuffy different places, and it would make us crazy. But, you know, I don't, I mean, it's just a funny comment in the book. Um, I think I um, didn't realize that sometimes I guess I can come off moody in new situations. I can get shy if I meet new people, and I, I, I try to understand where people are coming from, but a lot of times when I first meet people, they'll automatically bring up the election, and sometimes people will automatically bring up I, I don't know why they do this, but I voted for Obama. I'm a huge Obama supporter. It was the first election I really got involved with, blah, blah, blah. Like, if I met someone who I didn't agree with their politics or I didn't agree with what they were doing with their life, I would keep it to myself. I wouldn't just automatically make a dinner uncomfortable. But I think I surprised Michael. And Michael, obviously, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think I surprised Michael that I can be shy and a little, um, I guess, I don't want to say off-putting, but a little dismissive if... I feel like, you know, there's probably no chance of us having a connection. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really realize I'd do that. And then when Michael pointed it out, I was like, I do kind of do that. Hmm. And it was something I wanted to take out of the book, but ultimately, again, we left in because um, I'm not a perfect person and Michael's not a perfect person, and they didn't think readers want to read about perfect people. So we kept it even, and even if it's unflattering. I, I sense that um, among the the passages that were the most difficult to write or, or leave in the book, um, along with the Yakov Smirnoff episode, was the one where you smoked pot in New Orleans. <laughs> for, for most people these days, your age, right, or, or of any age, I mean, you know, uh, smoking pot is, you know, not really that big a deal. For you, it was kind of a conflict? 
You know, it's so funny that we both kind of come out in full support of legalizing marijuana, and it's a little bit serendipitous that it's so much in the media right now, and it's really, you know, really being discussed by a lot of people. I mean, The Daily Show did this whole thing on it last night, talking about, or the night before last, talking about um, how in New York, if this bill from Governor Cuomo passes, it would you would be fined more for having a six, larger than 16-ounce soda, selling a 16-ounce soda, than having marijuana on you if the bill passes. It's a $200 fine for the soda, $100 for marijuana, which is hilarious and ironic. <laughs> I don't smoke marijuana um, in my personal life. I'm a whiskey drinker, and that's where it begins and ends. When we were in New Orleans, um, we met a friend who wanted to, and I wanted to make him comfortable because he was about to show us literally his world in Treme, and I just felt when in Rome, you know, partake. And uh, at the time, I was living in Los Angeles, and I was shocked, shocked by literally how readily accessible marijuana is in Los Angeles and how open people are about smoking it or eating it or whatever, indulging in it, um, in, the, in the sense that in New York, the same way people would drink wine. Um, so I just feel like it's this issue we're just not talking about because there's so much stigma attached. And then with, you know, it's sort of coming forth that we both smoked pot in the book, it felt like an opportune time to really discuss why we should legalize marijuana in America. And I just think the economic benefits are so unbelievably, dauntingly possible to solve a lot of problems having to do with the economy and jobs in this country. I just felt like it's ridiculous that we're not at least decriminalizing it. But I sense some discomfort because it's illegal, and I was thinking, was this the effect of the office, the fact that you're a senator's daughter? Um, admitting- you know, it's still illegal, and it's still there's stigma attached to it. To it, I mean, we had, again, it was another discussion we had with Michael and the editor about keeping this, this chapter in and this event in, and there were a few people that said, you cannot print this, you can't put this in the book. Really? And again, uh. yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, I work for a news agency now, I didn't then, and, um, you know, I'm not ashamed and I'm not embarrassed and I'm not a liar. And I say that in the book, I'm not a liar. And if you ask me, I will always be honest. Um, and I just, it's still scary because I think people are going to take it out of context a little bit and it's going to just give people that already hate me more ammo because it's not a traditionally a Republican platform unless you're Ron Paul. Who do you think hates you? Oh, my gosh. I think right-wing pundits, Glenn Beck, Michelle Malkin, Ann Coulter, Laura Ingram, Need I go on? I mean, all those those people on the internet, all of Andrew Breitbart's now followers that you know reign over his legacy, hate me. It's the only aspect of my life that I have ever feared for my safety is when it comes to people like that, because they're just so aggressive and so angry. Wow, and, and angry at someone who writes as you did in this book. I love unapologetic attitudes, unabashed patriotism, long neck beers, longhorn beef, big hair, big makeup, giant Ford trucks with these colors don't run, bumper stickers, Second Amendment rights supporters, and pretty much every Texas stereotype that exists. And yet you're still not true blue enough or or true red enough for a lot of people. No, and it's what's wrong with the Republican Party today. You know, I'm for gay marriage, and that literally has been the issue that has separated me and drew a line and a division between me and a lot of a lot of other people. And I will say when I think, you know, I think Rick Santorum is way too extreme to be any kind of public spokesperson, let alone an elected official representing the Republican Party. And there's a lot of people that feel like they're gatekeepers to the Republican Party and that what they say goes and that I'm blasphemous. 
Um, but again, I can't live for anybody else but who I am. I find that people get in trouble in this industry once they start saying what they think other people want them to say instead of what they actually believe. And, um, you know, Michael knows me, and I refuse to ever, ever lie about anything, especially to my readers and all the college students that have supported me for so long. Um, there's so much bullshit in the country right now. I don't, I don't need to add to it. Yeah, Michael, you, you sort of pay uh, Megan a really great compliment. I don't have the quote here, but where you say she's one of the few people you know who really is open-minded still. Yeah, you know. I mean... Thanks, honey. <laughs> well, it, it, it really did strike me that Megan, probably even more than, than me, although I, it took me a while to sort of realize that, is coming at these issues with a real desire to learn and to understand. Um, she may not agree, and she generally doesn't, with my correct opinions, but she's at least willing to hear them out. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and not, not, I think, in a kind of pat way where she's just waiting for an opportunity to say, yeah, but. I think, you know, Megan, pretty uniquely among people in politics, is really trying to understand and trying to learn and trying to uh, expand her own knowledge base. It's very, it would be very, very easy for Megan, from her background, to live in the Republican echo chamber. And I think that prob- would probably be, be a very comfortable place for somebody with, from her background to live in. Uh, and, and incidentally, you know, the Democrats have their own echo chamber. You can, I could live in that echo chamber. Um, but to her credit, she doesn't. She, she moves outside of that. And the price that she pays is she gets really hated on by members of her own party and by Democrats. Um, and so, she, you know, she gets, that, she gets it from both sides, and, and, and she doesn't let it get her down, and, and she keeps her chin up. And, you know, I think that's really admirable and impressive. Um, you, you write, though, that um, I don't think I've ever met anybody who has ever changed their mind about any political issue. Once formed, opinions affix themselves like squid tentacles. The more you wriggle the more they seem to tighten. It's a curious thing. For all our talk about civil discourse, for all our high-minded optimism going into this adventure, I don't think either Megan or I have convinced each other of anything. Yeah, I don't think we, we did. did. Do you, Megan? I think I opened your mind to gun rights, Second Amendment rights, at least from my perspective. I, well, you, you certainly opened me to the experience of guns, and I, I was never somebody who was like, we need to outlaw guns. Um, I, but I went into it saying the NRA is a piece of shit organization, and I left our trip saying that NRA is a piece of shit organization. Take that back. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, I refuse to believe we, gone, we went through this experience and ha- didn't have some of our minds changed. I will say that Michael as a person, just again going back to stereotypes, I was pleasantly surprised by just sincerely what a family man he is and I, again, like, not to make everything so so over-the-top and dramatic, but I was going through a difficult time where it was nice to see a man that genuinely loved his, mo- his wife, genuinely loved his children, genuinely seemed to be happy with the life he had, and it was refreshing for me to see just someone who, you know, not that liberal, liberal people can't be family men because I didn't have that impression beforehand, but just that he ascertained to a sort of stereotype about, a nuclear family that I didn't really think really existed anymore. It's not my family. You know, my father was married twice, and I have half-brothers and sisters, and 
he just has this like again he's like I called you a snarky Dick Van Dyke. He's like this <laughs> 50s husband that goes home and loves the kids with his wife and hangs out with his kids and it's just really nice. Have you read uh, Michael's memoir? I did. Yeah. So I thought it was again honest and um, you know honest, but it's it's difficult. But you know he obviously loves his family. Well, good for you, Michael. You love your family. And I love my secret family even more. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're setting the bar pretty low there, Megan. (laughs) But but you guys, I mean, okay, so so you didn't really change each other's political views. On the other hand, um, you both loved Dennis Kucinich. We did. We did. Right, Michael? I I I mean I fell in love with Dennis Kucinich. You both that guy. you both met him in Washington. You were looking for somebody to talk to, uh, and and you found Dennis Kucinich. You were turned down by Al Franken, by the way. But but um, it's kind of funny to hear you both sing the praises of Dennis Kucinich. I think because, like Megan was saying, he's clearly a guy who is speaking his mind. And mm-hmm. when you meet those people, particularly in Washington, who are clearly saying what they feel, what they believe, not what they think you want to hear. It is like a, a blast of fresh air coming at you. He's so sort of unscripted and so passionate. And, you know, Megan, I don't think, agrees with anything he had to say, but I think she really loved his candor. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm probably, I probably disagree with him um, on, I don't know, I guess, gosh, 75 to 80% of his policies and, you know, his, his beliefs. But that being said, I mean, first of all, it was a very, um, it was not a great weekend to go and try and, visit um, all the politicians that I know and my father knows because they were very busy with the debt ceiling crisis, and he took time literally out of his incredibly busy schedule, and I think his staff was irritated. But we went in and we spoke with him, and he just seemed like he was still fighting the good fight. And I meet politicians all the time. I've been raised around politicians. Unfortunately, a lot of times they're full of it, and they're just doing it for the glory and the publicity, and they're partisan. And he said really nice things about my father to me, he referred, I asked him why he agreed to meet with us. He said, this is a congressional family that your father's a part of, which means you're a part of it, and I consider this a family, and I, would, I totally, of course, I would meet with you. And I'm misquoting him, but we quote him directly in the book. And he just seemed so still passionate about what he was doing and what he was fighting for. And it was just, I don't know, he was just, his, he was infectious. We both <laughs> loved him. And then, on, on top of everything else, I went on IMIS, a few months later, and he had asked about the book and Michael and what we were working on, and he said, is there anything that really surprised you? And I gave a little bit away, and I said, you know what, what surprised me so much was just how much I loved Dennis Kucinich. And then he wrote me a personal letter a week and a half later thanking me. I mean, mm. nicest, I mean, it just doesn't happen in politics anymore. Thank, you know, thanking me for saying such nice things about him. I mean, it was really refreshing. So you guys really didn't change each other's political opinions, but you got to see how people with different political opinions can still get along pretty well. I think what was important to both of us wasn't so much to try to change each other's mind. That was never really the agenda. What was more important, I think, was to find the places of common ground and to go, all right, we both agree on X, Y, and Z. We may disagree about how to get there, but if we can at least agree that X, Y, and Z are the places we want to get to, then we can start to have a conversation. And, we, and I think we both felt like that's where the nation as a whole it, it could benefit. It's just, just from sort of seeing the goal and not seeing uh, you know, all the obstacles along the way to it. I agree. 
Michael, you've been through uh, marriage counseling. You write about it in your book, your your memoir. Um, I don't know if it was effective, but what do you think of this idea? What if um, we had, a, uh, say, a TV show where they bring a conservative and a liberal together and have them sit down with some Dr. Phil type <laughs> each week? A political therapist. Exactly, a political therapist. I because think that would in be some fantastic. in some cases the culture wars do seem like a family quarrel that's gotten out of hand. Uh, I think that's exactly right. I actually think that's a great idea. I think you should go <laughs> pitch that. No, I'll let you do it. All right. <laughs> I'll take your idea and run with it. Please Bye. do. Please do. Megan, what do you think? I think that's a pretty accurate um, metaphor for what's going on in politics. And I think what's sad to me is that there's this anger towards people that want to find a middle ground, you're sort of seen as, I, th- I heard Mike Huckabee describe me as who cares about the mushy middle um, when he was asked about me and my beliefs, and I was so oh, wow. angered by that. Wow. Because I'm try- I know, exa- I know, and it's on YouTube if you're interested, and um, I was so angered by that because I don't think there's anything wrong or bad about compromising, and I don't think it makes me less passionate about what I believe. I don't think it makes me spineless, which was sort of the implication I got from him. I think I'm not extreme, and I always say, do you know what would be really easy? What would be really easy is if I went on TV every day and got the Republican talking points and stayed exactly to the extreme right doctrine and went on TV and just railed. And do you know what? I could easily do that. That's, that's not, that ain't that hard. Like, it's a very easy thing to do. And just stay on TV and say, everything, everybody, every one person believes, and we all believe this one thing, and that's it. And to me, you're not thinking for yourself if you're just agreeing because, you know, a few people that are, quote-unquote, the, you know, party leaders or the, you know, the public pundit leaders like Rush Limbaugh are saying, I don't know, I just think that there's this attitude that compromising somehow makes you weak, and that's extremely dangerous for America. Yeah, I'm still just saying, wow. I, I just can't get over that remark. Um, yeah. So Megan, I you- found it very insulting, very <laughs> insulting. <laughs> Megan, you, you, you're going to stay in the political scene then in some way, trying to reform uh, the Republican Party. That's your mission? Yeah, I mean, I love what I do. I really do. I, I really get up in the morning, and I, I love, I know that there's a lot of people out there that think that I shouldn't have a voice and that I've only, I'm only here because of my father and because of nepotism, and that's a very easy thing to say because there's a lot of people with famous politicians as parents that haven't gotten where I have. And I think that I really believe in what I'm saying, and I was really inspired by my father at a very young age, and I just felt compelled to use my voice and be a strong woman in the media. I don't think I am the young spokesperson for the Republican Party. I think I am a voice. And if you like that voice, great. You listen to it. And if you don't, don't listen to it. But there should be more voices out there and a more variety of people speaking out on different issues. And unfortunately, apparently, you just have to have you know, the platform to do it. How about you, Michael? Are you going to get more political, or are you going to stay pretty much where you are? I don't see myself getting terribly far into politics, uh, at least in, in terms of you know railing against whatever there is to rail against. I'm, I, I have always viewed politics as something that every citizen should pay some attention to, um, and you know that, that's that's how I see myself as just somebody paying attention, caring, reading. Um, informing, my, informing myself as much as possible, but more than that, sort of constantly questioning what it is I'm hearing and, and reassessing my own beliefs as I get more information. 
Well, just just want to say thanks to both of you guys. I really enjoyed talking to both of you. Thank, Thank you, you so much for having really us on. Yeah, and thanks for reading the book. Michael Ian Black and Megan McCain. They are the co-authors of the new book, America, You Sexy Bitch. It comes out in just a couple of days. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. And in the meantime, of course, you can always check us out at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. <laughs>